Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We continue this study on hope. Today, living in the expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe tells a story about early in his ministry, he preached a sermon on the second coming, and he had all the details and, and covered everything so thoroughly Another pastor who was there who heard the sermon, who'd been around a while, walked up to him and said, Warren, he said, that's a, a great sermon. It sounds like you were, you're on the planning committee for the return of Christ. And he laughed for a minute, and then the, the other pastor paused and put his hand on his shoulder and said, I've moved from the planning committee to the welcome committee. I like that. We, we will not know all the details this side of the return of Christ So I'm not going to try to put all those together, but I'm going to try to do what Peter has done. And what he's done is he's challenged us here to live in the light of the expectation of Christ's return. They expected his return when Peter wrote these words to happen at that moment, and we're still expecting that also. If you would follow along as I read aloud, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Now the end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and disciplined for prayer. Above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, here's some practical things we can be doing in light of the second coming of Christ. And ultimately, what he wants us to do is live lives that bring glory to God. Now, I want you to hold that place. We're going to come right back to it. But I want you to move ahead to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Because some people say, I don't get it. Peter was saying the end is near. And yet here we are, 2019, and we're still waiting. The end is even more more, uh, uh, imminent than it was then. So some people say, well, it doesn't make sense that God would be waiting this long. But I want you to read what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Did y'all find it there? I am there now. Dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Here's the key for me, verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise. In other words, his promise that he's coming again, that it's going to be imminent, that it's going to be soon. He does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness. He's challenging again to live lives of holiness. As you wait for and earnestly desire the coming of the day of God... The heavens will be on fire and dissolve because of it, and the elements will melt away with the heat. And he goes on to say, based on this promise, God will bring a new heaven and a new earth. So here's what Peter is trying to say to his readers, and I want us to get this. 
The end is near, even more so today than it was then. God is waiting until the people that he wants to come to know him come to know him. There's, God is not saying that he's, he's delayed his promise. What he's saying is he is waiting on people to come to know him. He's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And then I love what Peter says in verse 8 there. One day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. We don't know God's timing, God's timetable. The test of our commitment to the doctrine of the return of Christ It's not our ability to draw charts and name names and and dates and signs. I've seen all those. Some of them help me make sense because I'm a visual person. But what Peter is saying, the the key to the commitment to the doctrine of the return of Christ is godly living. The best application of the study of prophecy is not that you would know all the signs, but that you would apply the truths of Scripture into your daily life. And instead of calling us enlightened, you know, I'm, I'm going to get back to, um, back to the passage there when he says in chapter 4, 1 Peter, now the end of all things is near. Instead of calling us to some radical, new, extraordinary life, here's what Peter says. You just be faithful in your daily Christian life. You be faithful to the normal virtues of the Christian life. The reformer Martin Luther was asked what he would do if he knew that today would be the day that the world would come to an end. This is what Luther said. I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. Think about that. Here's what Luther was saying. He was, Martin Luther was saying, he was saying, I would just do what I'm doing. I would be faithful today to do what God's called me to do. I'd be a good citizen. I'd be a good person. I'd be a moral follower of Christ. So let's walk through here. That was just introduction. (laughs) Yeah, okay. But I had to set the stage, all right? Number one, just four brief points. Number one, be serious about prayer. Here's what Peter says. In light of the fact that Jesus could come at any moment like a thief in the night, even while we're here in this room today, Jesus could come back. In light of the fact, he says, be serious about prayer. Look at that in verse seven. Now the end of all things is near, therefore be serious and disciplined for prayer. The reality that God is gonna bring this world to an end should motivate me to depend on him more deeply for every, every breath I breathe, every moment of my life. And the way I depend on him is in relationship with him through prayer. I'm to be called to that. Peter says, be serious. Be serious about prayer. Romans chapter 14, Paul wrote these words, but you, why do you criticize your brother? Or you, why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before the tribunal of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow. Every tongue will give praise to Jesus. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's this serious mindset that Peter is talking about here. I know that I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account to him. Paul also wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, So then we must not sleep like the rest, but we must stay awake and be serious. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, we must be serious, put on the armor of faith, and love, and, and love on our chest and put on a helmet of the hope of salvation. Talking about the armor of God. Here's what Paul says in those two passages. Since we will one day stand before God, since Peter says it could be any moment now, I'm to be serious about my walk with him and especially serious about my prayer life. Johnny Erickson Tata, who is a, a very popular speaker now, an artist, her story has is, is, uh, been told and, and retold how she uh, became a paraplegic, paraplegic as she dove in a, a shallow p- pool, broke her neck, 
and, and God has used her over the years. Billy Graham Crusade has used her. Listen to part of her testimony. After 45 years of walking with Christ, this is, this is how she reflected. As a 14-year-old, she trusted Christ as her Savior. But she says, I confused the abundant Christian life with the great American dream. I'm just going to read you what Johnny Erickson Tata wrote. I was a Christian and would lose weight. I would get good grades. I'd get voted captain of the hockey team. I'd go to college. I'd marry a wonderful man who made $250,000 a year, and we'd have 2.5 children. That was her dream as a 14-year-old new Christian girl. It was me-focused, she writes. What can God do for me? I almost thought that I'd, that I'd done God a great big favor by accepting Jesus. And she notes my boyfriend and I were doing some things that were altogether wrong at the time. But in 1967, she says, I came home one Friday night after a date and I cried, oh God, I'm staining your reputation and I'm saying that I'm a Christian yet I'm doing one thing on Friday night and another thing on Sunday morning. She prayed, I'm a hypocrite. I want you to change my life. Listen to this prayer this young teenage Christian girl prayed. Please do something in my life that will jerk it right side up because I'm making a mess of my Christian faith and my life, and I don't want that. I want to glorify you. She says, then I had the diving accident three months later. And immediately after the accident, Johnny told God, you'll never be trusted with another prayer again, God, because he answered that prayer. But she says, after struggling in anguish and in anger, she finally prayed another short prayer that changed her life. She prayed, oh God, if I can't die, Show me how to live. Folks, that's being serious about prayer, isn't it? That's really focusing on what's, what's important. I think when Peter says be serious in prayer, I believe that, that Johnny is, points out to the fact that sometimes our prayer life is me-focused. It's all about what I can get, what God can do for me, what, what I need, what I want. Instead, he says be serious about it. Then he uses the word discipline in verse seven there. Be serious and disciplined for prayer. Sometimes I feel like in our prayers, we just go on autopilot. You ever feel like that? And you're, you find yourself praying the same thing? I remember the story about Payne Stewart, a professional golfer. He got on a Learjet in Florida, and they were headed somewhere in the Midwest, and the plane took a, a, a detour, flew over Texas, and then ended up somewhere in South Dakota, and they knew it was well off course, and the fighter planes were, were dispatched to go up there to figure out what was wrong, and all the cockpit was iced over. Obviously, everybody in the cabin had died. And that plane crashed into the ground after traveling 1,500 miles off course on autopilot because the crew had all died. There was some malfunction with the oxygen in the cabin. And I thought about that that plane goes all the way across the United States on autopilot and then crashes. You can live your Christian life on autopilot. You may end up crashing and burning at the end. Discipline means to be serious about, to be disciplined about your prayer life. I was thinking about Peter. And how Jesus, remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and Jesus said to Peter, he called him Simon at the time, Simon, why are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Back in Mark chapter 14. And then he comes and he finds him sleeping again. And then a third time he says, are you still sleeping? That's, that's Jesus to Peter. So I'm thinking as, as Peter's writing chapter, four, uh, chapter three and four here in his letter, thinking about how we need to be serious about prayer, do you think maybe he might have been thinking back to that? That there was a time when his Savior called him to be serious about prayer and he was lazy and sleepy. 
By the way, if you have trouble falling asleep when you pray, change something. Get up and walk around. Talk out loud as you pray. Has anybody else ever fallen asleep while you're praying? Am I the only one that's ever done that? Help me. Okay. All right. Be serious and disciplined in prayer. In light of the fact that Jesus would come at any moment, Peter says, get serious about prayer. Second thing, he says, practice intense love for one another. Practice intense love. Verse 8, above all, maintain an intense love for each other, since love covers a multitude of sins. I love that word intense. It means to be fervent, to be passionate, to, to strain forward, to stretch. That, that word is used of an athlete straining toward the goal, stretching every muscle they have to complete the task. I was watching some YouTube videos this week, and there's a whole collection of people who celebrated before the finish line. I mean, it is fascinating. It's just marathon runner after long-distance cyclist after racer, and they're about to win the race, and they take their hands off the handlebars, and they're doing this, and another guy zips by and passes them. There's a couple of marathon runners. They're almost to the line, and they start celebrating, and they fall down, and somebody else passes them. Over and over and over again, these people who don't stretch to the end, that's the opposite of what Peter's saying here. We're to have this kind of love that strains every muscle to the very end. C.S. Lewis said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. I think that's true. Not to protect, but to be vulnerable. To let, to let that other person even struggle in that relationship where you might get hurt. It's to be an intense love that stretches you. By the way, one of the things that God does in the body of Christ is he will put people in your local church family that will stretch you. Right? Don't do this to the person next to you. But it just seems like God allows us to be in a body of people who are like us, but they're not like us. They follow Christ, they're committed to him. Doctrinally, we seem to be on the same, the same wavelength, we're on the same page in, in philosophy and ministry, but they're just so different, and they seem to rub me the wrong way. Maybe they're God's sandpaper there. And I am to, I'm to be stretched, I am to strain to love that other person. It's interesting, he starts that verse there with above all. Above all. That's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? Above all, I want you to love one another. Jesus said, a new command I give you in John chapter 13, love one another just as I have loved you. You must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think what John was writing is the same thing that Peter's writing. This needs to be preeminent in your life, that you love other believers. We've said it over and over again, the, the old saying, to live above with saints we love, oh, that's gonna be glory. But to live below with saints we know, now that's another story. God wants us to live, did y'all get that? Okay. God wants us to live together right now. By the way, the people who know Christ as Savior, you're going to spend eternity with them, so you might as well get along with them right now. Above all, above all. Martin Luther King Jr., not Martin Luther, but Martin Luther King Jr., shortly before his death, spoke at Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church. And I want to I read you part of his sermon. He said, if any of you are around when, when, when I meet my day, I don't want a long funeral. 
And if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk too long. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or 400 other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. i just like somebody to mention that that, that that day that Martin Luther King tried to love somebody. That'd be good. Instead of everything that, that he's done, he just wanted to be remembered as someone who tried to love somebody. By the way, there may be somebody who you're trying to love. Keep trying to love them. Keep being stretched above all. It's interesting that Peter says, have this intense love because this love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. That, that means you've got to be willing to forgive others. In chapter 1, Peter said, having purified yourselves with a sincere love for the brothers, love one another earnestly. In chapter 2, he said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. In chapter 3, he said, you should love believers and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult. On the contrary, giving a blessing. And then here in chapter 4, he says, above all, love everyone. I think Peter knew in the midst of this, this culture that he was writing to, the people who were struggling, going through persecution, love had to be preeminent. Above all, love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Let me encourage you. Forgive other people. Forgive them. It is hard in the church when people hurt you and offend you. It's hard. That's why he says intense. It's going to be difficult. You have a choice when someone offends you and hurts you. You can take one of two paths. You can blame them. You can blame everybody else, and you can become bitter. Or you can choose to grieve through the hurt and become better. Forgive the person. Maybe reconcile and begin to trust God again. Those are the two, the two choices you have. And most often, we choose a path of bitterness. And who ends up getting hurt in that? Not the person who hurt us, but we end up hurting ourselves. I'd recommend a book, Forgiving the Unforgivable, by David Stoop. It's a small paperback. He illustrates how important it is to forgive other people. And in it, he encourages people that, that have been hurt in, in abuse situations. You're not, by forgiving them, you're not saying that what they did was all right. You're not saying what they did was okay, but you are choosing not to allow yourself to be a slave captive to that anymore. So I'd recommend you get that book, Forgiving the Unforgivable. By the way, there's several, several books by that title, but David Stoop is the author of the one that, that I recommend. What does it mean to cover a multitude of sins? It's a, it's a, it's a present tense verb that means constantly, continually cover sins. I, as a Christ follower, am to moment by moment every day be covering a multitude of sins. It just means, I believe that I'm not going to hold that against that other person. I could make a big deal about it, or I could choose to forgive and love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Wayne Grudem says this, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even large ones are often overlooked and forgotten. I believe that. When love abounds in a fellowship, offenses are overlooked and forgotten and forgiven. But, he says, where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound. You know what the solution is? 
Jesus taught it. Peter's teaching it. Paul taught it. If you want to get along and have unity in the body, there has to be love. And it's not, it's not an emotional love. It's, that is part of it, but it is a decision of the will. In Matthew, Peter is talking to Jesus. How long should I forgive them? Was Jesus, he says, do I do it seven times? He says, no, I want you to forgive 70 times seven. You know what he's saying? You just keep forgiving others. It has to be a decision of the will. Not just emotion, not just a feeling. So many songs have been written. Love is something you do. Love is an action. Love is a verb, all of those things. It, it, it make, it's a decision that you make to love that other person. The, the chapter on love that has been read at so many weddings, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter. Just listen to this description and see if this doesn't sound what Peter's talking about, how this could cover a multitude of sins. Verse 4 in, in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish, is not provoked, does not keep a record of wrongs, does not keep a record of wrongs, does not keep a record of wrongs. Did y'all hear that? I love them, but you don't know what they did to me. I love them, but love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's the verb that Peter uses here when he says it's to be a a constant covering of sin. A decision of my will that I'm going to love that other person, I'm going to forgive that other person. One of my favorite stories is of Corrie ten Boone. Read her biography. See the movie, The Hiding Place, read the book about how her family protected Jews during the the Nazi reign. She met a former Nazi guard years after the war at a speaking engagement. He was a man who was in the concentration camp. She remembered when, I think it was in Auschwitz where she was, and she remembered him. It's actually Ravensbrück is where she remembered this man. He would stand there and watch the the people go into the showers and just glare at them. And she remembered his face. It was burning her mind. So years after the war, she's at a speaking engagement, and that man walks up to her, that guard. And she says, suddenly it was there, a room full of mocking men and heaps of clothing. The man came up to me and said, I'm grateful for your message. To think, as you say, that Jesus has washed my sins away. And then Corey goes on to write. That's what the man said to her. She writes, I kept my hand by my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sins of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Jesus died for that person who hurt you. And she goes on to say, Jesus died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me. Help me to forgive him. I tried to smile, but I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. She said, give me your forgiveness. I took the man's hand, and the most incredible thing happened. Into my whole heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it's not our forgiveness any more than our goodness that the world's healing hinges on, but his. Folks, you may have trouble forgiving somebody. Let God forgive them through you. 
Let his love be manifested. Number three. Be serious about prayer. Practice intense love. Number three, practice hospitality. What in the world is the reason for Peter putting that one in here? Because he's talking about practical Christian living. See, in that culture, look at verse nine. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. That was an urgent, important thing that happened in that culture. He says, be hospitable without complaining. Max Lucado writes about hospitality. I love this. He says, long before the church had pulpits and baptistries, it had kitchens and dinner tables. Even a casual reading of the New Testament reveals this, that the house was the primary tool for the church. The primary gathering place was the home. Consider the genius of God's plan, he writes. At Pentecost, at least 50 nationalities heard Peter's sermon that day. Jews next to Gentiles, men next to women, slaves and masters, all different backgrounds and cultures coming together. And then he says, we wonder the same thing today. Can Hispanics live in peace with Anglos? Can Democrats find common ground with Republicans? Can a Christian family carry on a civil friendship with a Muslim family down the street? Can people just get along? He said the early church did without the aid of sanctuaries, church buildings, clergy, or seminaries. All they had was the message of the cross in their homes. We've got that today. Did you know that? We do have all this. We do have people who are called in ministry. Lucado calls them clergy. We have these places to worship. We have these buildings. But more than that, we have our homes. And we can be hospitable to people. We can use our homes as a ministry opportunity. Are we doing that? By the way, he says without complaining, doesn't he? Every guest has a way of overstaying their welcome, right? Have you ever been that guest? You know when it's time to leave? You know, you just sense it, right? Maybe, maybe you have somebody with you now and they haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> well, I have a good word for you. Peter says, be hospitable without complaining. I need to move on. <laughs> Number four, exercise your spiritual gifts. Be serious about your relationship with God through prayer. Have an intense love that stretches you. Be hospitable. Use your home to minister to and care for others. And then he says, exercise your spiritual gifts. It's been a while since we read verse 10, so I want to go back and read 10 and 11. Based on the gift each one has received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, it should be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, it should be with the strength God provides. So here, Peter breaks down the gifts as many have done into the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. Maybe some of you have been given the speaking gifts to, to teach, to preach, to, to encourage, to, to exhort, to build up. Maybe you've been given the serving gifts behind the scene just to minister to others. But basically, he's saying use those gifts with the strength that God provides. You see that? Use it from the strength that God provides. That means that, that God is supplying that ability to minister to one another. That word was used of a, of a wealthy person 
when it talks about provision, who would, who would supply the funds for some big art project or some big chorus for the arts or whatever, like a philanthropist. See, God is the philanthropist who has given us his grace gifts, and he's supplied them, he's provided them for us. You can go to Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians 4, and read about those gifts. We don't have time to do that today, but you have the, the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. I just want to say something about the speaking gifts. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, there's a, a statement that Paul writes that I pray every Sunday morning. And, and I think if you have the speaking gifts, this needs to be your prayer too. Where is 1 Corinthians? Yeah. All right. I could do this from memory, but I want to read it to you, okay? Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God among you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, for I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul says, I'm not coming with man's wisdom. I'm not coming with brilliance of speech. He says, I came to you in weakness, in verse 3, in fear, in much trembling, and my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration, a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, that your faith might not be based on, God's wisdom, on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That's my prayer every Sunday morning. If you have a gift of speaking, if you have a gift of teaching, of encouraging, of, of, of proclaiming the truth, you need to make that your prayer. God, I don't want this to be about my eloquence, about my persuasive speech, but I want it to be about your power and your authority that you ultimately would be the one who gets the glory. Use those gifts. Serve him. Peter is saying, in essence, let, let, your, let your serving be as good stewards. Use them for the glory of God. Are you using your gifts as God has gifted you? Are you faithfully serving him? I was thinking about, I've shared this before, there, there are millions of dollars worth of unredeemed gift cards just sitting out there. They may be at your house. In, in a period of about six years, the, the government agency that figures all this out estimated there was $41 billion of unused gift cards over that six years. That means like a gift card to Chili's or Target or the movies or whatever, and some people lose them, some people never use them, some people only use them partially. All of that unused gift card out there. So you go home and see what you've got, all right? But here's, here's what the picture that I think about. I think about the gifts that God has, used, has given us, and we're using them like those gift cards. They're in a drawer somewhere. They're stuck away. We forgot we even had them, that they're even there. Be a good steward of those gifts. Be prepared. There's a hotel in Chicago called the Drake Hotel. It's right on, the, on, the, the, on Lake Michigan there. In the 1950s, the Queen of England was coming to visit Chicago, so the city rolled out the red carpet. They did everything they could do to, to, improve that, the, to improve the city. They painted the trash cans and cleaned the streets, did everything they could do. And they sent out a notice to all the hotels in the area to get ready. The Queen was coming to Chicago, and they, they contacted the manager of the Drake Hotel, and they said, we want you to be prepared. And he said, we are making no plans for the queen. And they caught him off guard. But then he said, our rooms are always ready for royalty. 
Can you say that about your life? The king is coming. Oh no, what am I going to do? Are you going to be like Martin Luther? Hey, I'm going to do what I've always done. I'm going to be faithful. Our rooms are always ready for royalty. Could you say that about your life? The king is coming. Don't isolate yourself and study the signs. Instead, ask yourself, am I living so that others will see, like Peter says, the glory of God in everything? Are you dependent on him in prayer? Intensely loving others, forgiving others, and using your gifts. That's our call. Let's pray together.